creating cultural awareness and understanding. This is Culture Click. Culture Click is written and produced by KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University. In today's world of smartphones and GPS, finding your way around is pretty easy. But what did people do before GPS? How did sailors navigate their way on the open seas? Today on Culture Click, we find out about early marine navigation techniques with Winona State University professor Greg Neidhart. Greg is the director of the Arts Administration Program at Winona State University, but he was also a navigator in the U.S. Navy. Greg fills us in on the instruments and techniques sailors use to navigate, as well as why these navigation skills are still important and relevant in today's world. I'm Bill Stoneberg with Professor Greg Neidhart on Culture Click. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thanks for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Um, it, it's a pleasure having you on the show. Like I, you know, we were talking before, um, this is a topic that I think is really interesting because, uh, you know, in today's world, a lot of people don't even carry a map in their glove box in their car anymore. You know, everyone's using their phones and stuff. And it's, you know, to me, I'm curious about how how people found their way around, especially out on out at sea and stuff like that. You know, I mean, I think it's kind of fascinating, you know, so... Well, you know, I, I, I agree uh, completely. Um, uh, you know, of course, for many, many, many years, people use the kind of the greatest map of all, and that would have been the sky. Right. Uh, for, you know, thousands and thousands of years, uh, you know, mankind found their way around the earth by using this ever-moving map, the sky. So, right. And uh, even today, uh, you know, people certainly refer to the to the skies, and, and even though we seem to have, you know, sort of backed away from that a little bit in the, in the age of GPS, we all know that, GPS and satellites can be compromised. Things can things can be hacked, um, and I think people are rediscovering. Um, I don't want to say rediscovering astronomy. Astronomy has been popular for for ages, right. but discovering, for example, the use of the stars in celestial navigation. Mm-hmm. So part of my talk at the Marine Art Museum last week dealt with celestial navigation and how the early navigators uh, used celestial navigation as well as. Uh, you know, the, uh, the mariners in the early American Navy in the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, what time period are we asking? So early, late 1700s, early 1800s, that's, um, and then uh, U.S. Navy, huh? Right. O- often when people think of the, you know, the beginning of the U.S. Navy, they often think of the Continental Navy from the, from the Revolutionary War. Right. But really, the, 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 perhaps the seeds of the Navy, you know, were planted then, but Really, the early American Navy happened, you know, after the founding of the country in the late 1700s, okay. the establishment uh, of the Navy. And then we had these crises with, uh, uh, with um, Britain, <laughs> again, after the Revolutionary War, and then with the Barbary Pirates and with the French. We were involved in this quasi-war with the French in the late 1700s, and then the Barbary Pirates again and the British. So there was a need for uh, an establishment of an American Navy, of a U.S. Navy. Uh, primarily to protect uh, the merchants. Uh, okay. We had a, a thriving merchant marine uh, in the uh, early America, and uh, they were unprotected. And I think Congress saw a need for a Navy that would primarily protect our merchant interests. And from that, uh, we have the beginning of the, the American Navy. Oh, cool. So it's almost like an economic thing that happened that, you know, to it, drive it. It really is. I, I think uh, if you sort of look at the, uh, you know, the kind of the seeds of the American Navy, uh, going past the Continental Navy of the Revolutionary War, it, it really was to protect the merchant interests in many ways. Okay, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious, uh, can you give us a real generalized idea of like how they navigated? Like what kind of tools did they use and 
you know, uh, how, how did that work, navigating by the stars? Well, in many ways, they would use the same things that we use today when we navigate by the stars. Uh, the sextant, and you've probably heard of the, of the I've sextant. Heard of that, yeah. It, it was really sort of, you know, uh, uh, developed really in the 1700s. I mean, we saw predecessors going back many, many, you know, hundreds of years. Okay. With, uh, but it, it with things like the um, the uh, the astrolabe and the things like this. But the sextant really was sort of uh, found its you know, footing, if you will, in the, in the kind of the mid to uh, late 1700s. And so by the time the American Navy was established, they were using sextants. So right. they would have been using celestial navigation. Of course, uh, celestial navigation had been used for thousands of years. Right. But uh, with the, uh, really with the um, development of the marine chronometer, uh, chronometer in the 1700s, uh, there was a, uh, this very famous um, uh, carpenter, named John Harrison, an Englishman. And he developed these amazing marine chronometers. Uh, you know, really accurate clocks have been around for a while, but they couldn't take them to sea. Okay. But John Harrison was able to sort of develop these wonderful uh, marine chronometers. And he solved what was called the longitude problem. Uh, a, a problem with celestial navigation or navigation at sea uh, uh, is the longitude issue. Latitude is a relatively easy thing to determine uh, without a clock, but with a really accurate marine chronometer, which is a, just a really accurate clock, you can, you can also determine your longitude. So now with the development of the marine chronometer in the 1700s, you now can uh, really determine accurate positions for your latitude and for your longitude. And by the time the American Navy was established in the late 1700s, early 1800s, the, uh, those captains and navigators really understood how to use you know, chronometers and sextants quite well. Okay. So how does the – so chronometer is like a really accurate clock that yes. that'll, can withstand shaking yeah. around at sea, right? it, it, Exactly. A clock or, in fact, the, uh, the uh, I mentioned Harrison. He developed these four clocks called mm -hmm. H1, 2, 3, and 4. Okay. And we go from these big – so these massive clocks from H1, H2, and H3. And by the time he hits – makes H4 – it's like a large pocket watch. Oh wow! So it's—I uh, mean, it's a large watch, uh -huh. but it—you've it, gone from this, this, uh, you know, this large clock, marine clock, to essentially a marine chronometer, which you could hold in your hand. I would call that sort of the moonshot, if you will. They've gone from these really somewhat cumbersome. Uh, big clocks to essentially a large watch, which is incredibly accurate. Uh, it's the kind of uh, timepiece that you would have seen James Cook take on his uh, Pacific expeditions in the 1770s, for okay. example. Okay, cool, cool. So, so how did they determine their latitude based on that? Well, uh, it was really the longitude issue. Oh, it's the uh, longitude. Right. right okay. Latitude is relatively easy. Uh, in fact, uh, we have this thing called the North Star uh, mm -hmm. or Polaris. And really, if you can look at the sort of the angle between the horizon and, and Polaris, uh, you can determine your latitude. Okay. So, for example, if uh, Polaris is 10 degrees above the horizon, uh, you're probably at 10 degrees north latitude, for example. Longitude was a little bit tougher because uh, Polaris is always there. Polaris is almost always around what we would call the uh, kind of the celestial north pole. It's always okay. right there. It's a little few degrees off, but you can always you always know that Polaris is always pretty much it, north. I mean, that's that's an easy one to, to, to sort of determine. So latitude can be determined quite uh, quite easily. Uh, you and I could do this today, tonight. We'd just find Polaris and we would right. know what our latitude is. Okay, longitude, cool. though, uh, you need, because there is no equivalent to Polaris for the east-west, right. for uh, you know, using the meridians or determining longitude, uh, we need an accurate clock. And by with an accurate clock um, 
and uh, essentially, without going into detail, uh, with uh, the aid of an accurate clock or a marine chron uh, chronometer and some math, uh, you need to be able to do some calculations <laughs> as well, you can determine your, your longitude. Essentially, a, a, an accurate clock tells you what your reference time is. For example, if you um, uh, know that it's 12 noon in Greenwich, England, and that's called the Prime Meridian, uh, it runs through, uh, Greenwich is just a part of London. It's sort of the east part of London. Okay. And that's what we call the prime meridian. If you know it's 12 o'clock in, in Greenwich, England, for example, and the sun is right above, uh, you know, you know that's 12, that's 12 noon. Well, if now you have a clock and it's, let's say, um, uh, two o'clock, let's say it's 12 o'clock your time, you know, but the time back in Greenwich is 2 p.m. That's two hours earlier. Well, we know that the sun moves at 15 degrees per hour. Oh. So we know that 15 degrees would be one hour. Another 15 degrees would be two hours. So if it is now 12 o'clock at our local time, it's 2 o'clock back at Greenwich, the sun has moved 30 degrees. Oh, wow. So we know that we are now 30 degrees west of the prime meridian. Oh. So they could use that, uh, and there's there's a lot of math involved with this. Okay, but sure. But not beyond the scope of the reach of what the mariners could understand back then. Right. So they can now do these calculations at sea, and if they had an accurate timepiece, they could determine both latitude and longitude. And there are other ways to determine longitude and latitude as well. Uh, for years, they also used, used something called the lunar method, also, they would use the, the moons of uh, certain planets to determine, you know, longitude. But it was very difficult to make those, you know, those mathematical calculations. With the marine chronometer, it made it somewhat easier. A little easier. Okay, and, cool. Yeah, and that's what we still use today. That's fascinating. So, and then I, I want to back up just a little bit, you know, when you were talking about uh, uh, latitude, right, and, the, and, the, and Polaris. Yes. So I'm going to take a stab in the dark here. Is that where the sextant comes in? Well, the sextant. The degrees or? Well, we use the sextant uh, Polaris, but we also use the sextant for uh, the navigational stars. Okay. And of course, there are you know millions of stars, but we use fifty-seven stars have been determined to be those of the navigational stars, and this really goes back a couple thousand years. Oh, but wow. there are fifty-seven years that we use for determining help determining our position. We also use the sun. We use the moon, and we use four planets as well. So it isn't just uh, the sextant to look at Polaris. Right. We use it primarily to look at the planets and the stars. Okay. So typically a navigator, if they want to determine their position, uh, they would want to look at at least three uh, celestial bodies. It could okay. be a planet, it could be stars, because that will give them what is called a three-point fix, to get a line right. of position or a three-point fix, which helps them determine where they are. So the sextant is really just for determining uh, angles. It's okay, just a, sure. That's all it really is, for cool. determining angles between uh, you know, our horizon, our position on Earth, and various celestial bodies. Nice, nice. It's interesting because you, know, you hear these terms thrown out once in a while, you know, a sextant, stuff like that, and yes. I'm like, how does that work? What is it? You know, so it's pretty cool to hear that, you know, you can determine the angle and the uh, degrees of everything. It, it is very so. cool. And it, it is a lost, I don't want to say it's a lost art because it was never lost. But mm -hmm. years ago, uh, the Naval Academy determined that it wasn't necessary for their uh, uh, their students or their, their graduates to oh, know no. celestial navigation. They stopped teaching it in 2000. And I believe it was 2000. Uh, I'm not a Naval Academy grad. Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe ROTC, you know, Naval ROTC units stopped teaching it in 2006. 
Well, as we know, uh, over the last couple of years, satellites can be compromised. They can mm -hmm. be hacked. Things can happen. And so they determined a couple of years ago uh, at the Naval Academy and ROTC that they need to start teaching this again. Oh, good. And I believe in 2016, they said we need to begin teaching this again. Now, the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, we do have a U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. Mm -hmm. They never stopped teaching it. But the Naval Academy and ROTC did stop. And now, once again, over the last few years, it is part of the curriculum for um, uh, both ROTC units and the Naval Academy. Cool. Well, that's not only uh, kind of neat that they do that, but it, I would assume it's very useful. Yeah. I mean, what if you get lost or you're, you know, like you said, satellites can go down, things like that. So Well, and, and people become so dependent on GPS. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, so uh, I think it's a, just a wonderful skill, and it's a way to get in touch with our uh, with nature in a way right. that perhaps we've lost over the last, you know, 10, 20, 30 years or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's a, you know, I sometimes, you know, I look up the stars and it's like, it's a really big thought to think, well, that's yeah. over there. That's yeah. over there. It's this far away. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. so I mean, knowing your position at sea, it, that's pretty fascinating to me. I think it's really cool. Um, so what other kind of... Uh, uh, so did they, like the early U.S. Navy in the time period we're talking about, late 1700s, mm. early 1800s, um, were there, did they all kind of use the, a universal method to navigate or did it depend on the type of vessel or? Well, I, I don't want to say every, every you know, uh, you know mariner used a sextant. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, there were many methods that were, had been used for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm. Uh, that were probably still being used in the early days of the American Navy. Um, one method of, like crossing the Atlantic would be what is called sailing down the latitudes. In mm. other words, it's easy to find the latitude. Right. So if you know what latitude your, let's say, uh, port is that you're going to, let's mm -hmm. say you're leaving New York and you want to go to Lisbon. Well, if you find the, the, the latitude of Lisbon, well, you go out to sea, you find your latitude, and you just sail down the latitude. Okay. And so it's not the fastest way to, to, to travel, but it is a way to know. You, you know that if you're on uh, the latitude of, let's say, 40 degrees north and you mm -hmm. sail down the latitude, um, you will eventually hit your port if your port is on that latitude. <laughs> right. um, and also in, in early American navigation, a lot like today, I guess navigation can be broken down to three areas. One would be celestial navigation. Okay. One would be electronic navigation, and right. we all know what that is, right. uh, GPS. And when I was a navigator in the Navy, we had electronic, we used satellites as well. Mm -hmm. Not nearly as accurate as GPS. Uh, but we had satellite navigation and other forms of, elect of electronic navigation. We had systems uh, like Loran, Charlie, and Omega. These were fair, famous kind of land-based systems. And then the other system would be piloting. Uh, that's a big part of navigation. That mm. would be sailing or, uh, you know, uh, operating near shore uh, because okay. navigators had to get in to port without running aground. Right. They had to know about lighthouses and beacons and buoys and shoal water and how to read charts. So a big part of navigation simply is not, um, uh, you know, operating in the blue water, what we would call the, the brown water, operating near shore. Okay. And that is probably the more um, kind of the, the hair-raising part of navigation. Yeah. You know, getting out to sea is one thing, but then navigating uh, in, sh uh, you know, near shore uh, in a port making sure you don't run aground, that's the uh, that's the nerve-wracking part of navigation. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like that would be the scary part, you know. <laughs> it, it, it can be, it, it, very much so, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so you had mentioned uh, charts, yes. and one thing I've always wondered, you know, is, uh, you know, you hear about charts, using charts at sea. What is the difference between charts and maps that we would use, like, on land? 
Well, we use uh, charts uh, on on the water, on at sea, and in the air. We have aeronautical charts okay. and in nautical charts. Uh, on land, we call them maps. Mm-hmm. And of course, maps might have uh, political issues uh, like state lines and city boundaries and things like this. Right. But a chart would be primarily, um, uh, you know, a, focusing on the sea and the land right around sea. For example, I would use a chart if I was, um, uh, as I did many times, coming into Hampton Roads, which is near Norfolk, Virginia. I would use a number of charts. And the charts would have uh, a lot of information about the terrain. They would show lighthouses and beacons. And uh, at my talk last week, I talked about these two lighthouses at Cape Henry um, uh, in Virginia Beach. And if you look at a chart, you could tell that uh, how, tall the, how tall one of the lighthouses is, um, what kind of signal it, it, um, uh, you will see when you look at this lighthouse. For example, it will, the light will flash in Morse code. Uh, oh, really? the, the letter U, uniform, dot, dot, dash, dot, dot, dash. You know that wow. it's 164 feet tall, and at that height, the light will uh, extend for 15 miles in good, in good uh, oh, visibility. Wow. Now, if you're on a ship, you're above the, line, uh, the horizon 15 miles out, so there's a good chance that you can see the Cape Henry Lighthouse 20 miles or more away. So being able to read a chart, knowing how to read uh, like the width of a channel, what kind of bottom you might find. For example, let's say we want to anchor it uh, someplace. Uh, it might tell us if there's a sandy bottom or a rocky or a muddy bottom. Uh, it tells us where some obstructions might be. There might be a, a sunken wreck someplace. So reading a, a chart is very important. Yeah. Um, and of course, the early American navigators in the early uh, 1800s would have to know how to read charts. They weren't nearly as accurate. And many of the charts that they would use, just like many of the instruments, like sextants, would have been made in England. Uh, okay. So, you know, we had not really developed uh, a, a thriving chart and map making uh, industry like they had in England. But uh, the early navigators probably would have used a lot of uh, materials that were actually manufactured in, in England. Okay. Like for those early charts, because it sounds like they're really detailed now that you're talking about the yep. type of bottom and everything and yep. obstructions. Um, back then, uh, when they're making charts here in the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, would they... Where would they get that information? Would they kind of just share information with each other and update the charts? Or? Right. Well, now they do hydrographic surveys, but it's amazing even today's charts. I was looking at a website uh, about a week or so ago from uh, uh, NOAA, uh, I think, let's see, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, mm-hmm. and it showed all the um, kind of the, uh, the waters off the coast of Alaska, and it showed when they had been updated. And there were parts of the Alaskan coast that were last updated in the 19th century. Oh, wow. So this would uh, probably have been determined by uh, perhaps some surveys they did back then. Uh-huh. But the early charts would have been uh, based on uh, just, um, uh, you know, uh, the data that they would have collected from mariners around the world. Right. I remember sailing in the, in the Caribbean uh, in the Navy, and we would often find um, information based on admiralty charts from the, the 19th century that would show that a... a, a location had been last mapped in the 19, 19th century. Oh, wow. And so it could have come from anecdotal information. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I, I'm not a, a cartographer. Sure. And, uh, but um, uh, a lot of information would have been uh, probably collected. Those early uh, charts would have been built from just material that was collected by those early sea captains. Wow, wow. So I suppose it was really important when they uh, were in somewhere new to gather new information for repeat voyages or for other 
Oh, absolutely. Vessels. Absolutely. Especially if you're going to anchor, let's say, uh -huh. or you're sailing into a new port, you want to make sure you don't hit a reef right. or hit shoal water. Right. Or if you want to drop your anchor, is it going to be rocky or is it going to be muddy? Okay. And if your chart says that, um, uh, one thing we talked about, at the, or I talked about, was the, um, the use of what's called the lead line. And that is what a ship would have used and could still use today to determine how deep water is. And uh, so they would drop this, this piece of lead on, uh -huh. a, on a rope and determine how deep the water is. Okay. And at the bottom of these early lead lines, they would, it would be carved out and they would put tallow in there. And tallow, of, of course, is you know, rendered fat from, mm -hmm. uh, to make soap and candles. And they put tallow in there because when they would drop the lead line, when they'd pull it back up on the tallow, it would, it would, uh, you know, um, it would stick to whatever's on the bottom. Oh. And so if the chart might say, let's say, let's say the chart indicates mud, and they bring the lead line back up, and there isn't mud there, but there's sand. Well, maybe they're perhaps in the wrong location. Oh. So, uh, and that, that would be also a, a way to determine what the bottom is if you're sailing here for the first time. Right. So, um, uh, I'm afraid I've gone a little astray of the question No, that's here. great. But, um, yeah, just one of the things that they would have done to uh, help uh, build these early charts. Right, right. So, uh, they're constantly updating and everything. That's that's really interesting how they'd find out how the bottom is, you know, what what's on the bottom. Yep. And, and I know lead lines are still used today. When I uh, first joined my ship, when I was first in the Navy, um, uh, my ship went to um, sail to Phuket, Thailand. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, this is many years after the Vietnam War, but they were the first American ship to enter Phuket Harbor. And so they weren't really sure what the, uh, what the depth of the, the harbor was. Uh -huh. And I had just missed the, the ship. I had flown in from Africa and I was sitting on a small island in the Indian Ocean. Okay. And so I just missed the ship. So I was there for two uh, weeks, but I heard when they came back that they actually put a lead line, a crew on a boat, with a lead line, and they rowed the boat mm -hmm. out. Well, they didn't row. They motored out in front right. of the ship, and it's just dropping lead lines huh. to see how deep the water was. Wow. So lead lines can still be used today. Yeah, yeah. I know I've used my anchor on the river sometimes when I don't have a depth finder. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there find you out go. how deep it is. Do you have it tied off at marks to see how deep it is? Or no, I just kind of counted my hands. Like oh. Counting, you know, <laughs> well, that I'm works. Guessing how many feet. So <laughs> As long as it's deeper than the draft of your boat, you're good. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't take that into account. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that went into this. That's, that's, that's yeah. really cool. And then another question I had was, you know, we talked about how to chart your position, you know, find out where you are at. Um, how did they calculate uh, distance and speed? Well, they would use, um, uh, initially, they would use something like uh, like a chip log. And a chip log is simply a piece of wood. Mm -hmm. uh, the early chip logs were sort of based like a triangle, or based, they were shaped like a triangle with uh, ropes, you know, tied to them. And then they would put knots on the rope uh, every 48 feet or every, you know, every six fathoms. Okay. And so uh, what they would do, they would take an hourglass and the hourglass would have about 28 seconds worth of water or sand. And so a person would stand at the taffrail or the back of the ship, the stern, and they would throw this log in the water. And as it would sort of reel out, they would count the knots going past the person. Oh. And after 28 seconds, they would turn it over. And, and they know if, let's say, seven knots had played out, the ship was going seven knots, which would equal seven nautical miles per hour. Oh, wow. So they could determine, uh, since, you know, uh, consequently we get the term knots, came uh -huh. from tying knots in the rope, in, yeah. the, in the, uh, the chip log. And we know that knots, uh, there's an equivalency with nautical miles. Uh -huh. So again, if we're, if we're traveling seven knots, we're going seven nautical miles per, per hour. 
Cool. I always wondered where that term came from, yeah. knots, you yeah. know? Yeah. That's neat. How do they? What, how does a nautical mile compare to a, like a, a mile on land? What's it, the difference? It, it's just a little bit different. I mean, there, there is a difference, but um, yeah, they're not the same, but there is a, a difference in Just nautical. a slight difference. And, you're right. And um, yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah, I'm drawing a blank on the ex- exact equivalency, but it is, it is a, just a little bit different. Okay. Yes. Okay. Just a, just a, yeah. There's some, yeah. Yeah. Um, so how about, uh, you know, when they're sailing and they're plotting their course, they find out their position, you know, um, they can calculate their speed. How do they factor in for wind and stuff when they're plotting their course? Do they have to do that? Or? Well, yeah, they do, uh, and that is called set and drift. So okay. typically a ship would um, uh, lay out a line. Let's say they, let's say they get a fix. Maybe uh-huh. they get a fix off of a land uh, feature, perhaps some lighthouses, maybe some buildings. They know where they are near land. Or if they're heading out to sea, they're getting a celestial fixes from planets or stars right. or maybe a noon fix. So they put a position on the chart and then they just lay out a line, a straight line of their course. And then maybe an hour or two later, they get another fix and they find that they're off. Well, uh-huh. it means that the, they've been pushed either by, you know, it's called set and drift. Maybe they've been pushed forward or backwards or they're off course. So then okay. they get another position, they, they mark it again and lay out, lay out another course. Wow. So right, you might think that you're going three or four or five knots but maybe you're going nowhere. Maybe you're being pushed backwards. Uh-huh. Um, maybe you're being pushed uh, to the left or the right. And uh-huh. um, uh, so uh, that's why you need to get periodic fixes to determine where exactly you are. Right. Of course, it helps if you have uh, a lack of clouds when you're getting a celestial fix or have really good GPS. Okay. <laughs> okay. This is pretty complex. So were they, um, so like a navigator on a ship, they're pretty much constantly doing this then, right? To update or? Well, uh, I wouldn't say you know, like every few minutes or so, but uh, uh, you would probably get celestial fixes in the morning and the evening uh, okay. for the, for the planets and stars. And you uh-huh. can get a noon site as well for the sun. Uh, because you know during the daytime you do you typically do not see the planets you right. might see a planet but you typically do not see stars and planets mm-hmm. and the best time to catch uh, the stars would be that half hour uh, you know right after sunset or that half hour right before sunrise you know twilight okay sure and yeah. because the navigational stars are really sort of prominent during that that those half hour periods okay. so when i would get a uh, when i would take celestial fixes when i would shoot the stars i would usually wait till right when the sun goes down i have about a half hour to find my stars and uh, or do it in the morning about a half hour before mm-hmm. the sun comes up because we still have some really bright stars and planets to, to shoot right okay and you you know you've mentioned uh, uh your time in the navy um is that what got you interested in celestial navigation or you know early uh, navigation well I, I think it goes back to maps i just love maps okay, as a kid cool. um, I, I lived in i lived in southern indiana and my father worked for uh, housing and urban development of uh, the department of housing and urban development uh-huh. but he um worked out of Chicago and he worked primarily in Minnesota and Iowa. And so I had this big map on my bedroom wall and then he traveled all the time. So uh-huh. I got to follow my father oh, cool. on the map. Now he would get home about once a week, but I would get to I would sort of follow him. And back when I was very young, um, gas stations uh, or service stations used to give out free maps nice. and I never passed up an opportunity to get a free map. Oh, cool. And so I just, I used to love maps. I just love uh-huh. maps and celestial navigation was something I really began to think about after I, um, you know, um, uh, 
got into the Navy. Right, right. And you were a navigator in the Navy, correct? Well, my, my first job, yes. I okay. was, um, uh, there are three kinds of line officers, uh, you know, aviators, mm -hmm. uh, submariners or submariners, okay. and then what are called surface warfare officers. They're the ones who, you know, uh, essentially uh, are on ships. And okay. I, was a, I was a surface warrior. Okay. Uh, not surface warrior, a surface uh, warfare officer. Mm -hmm. And my first billet was as navigator of the uh, USS Savannah based out of uh, Norfolk, Virginia. Nice. And I met it out in the Indian Ocean. Oh, cool. On its way to um, uh, Oman and then the coast of Africa. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's a great job for someone who loves maps. <laughs> it, it was great. Um, uh, and for someone who had been a music major, I was, uh, I gave my, you know, my music recital uh one day and a year later i was taking a ship through the suez canal so wow it was a it was a big leap but yeah yeah fascinating so i'm curious do you have a big collection of maps at home then no 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 not anymore <laughs> no no I, i've never really had a well i mean i have maps uh -huh. uh, i have a few charts but i don't collect charts uh, okay I have lots of maps and but um mostly you know Texaco maps, <laughs> sure, sure, Not, uh, yeah. and uh, some some aeronautical charts, but uh, I don't really have a collection now. Okay, okay, fair enough. Um, what do you think is the most fun and interesting thing about these uh, early navigation techniques? Oh, uh, I think it's just that connection with nature, maybe the fact okay. that you, it's I don't say it's primal, but uh, you are really connected with nature in a way that um, I think most people are not these days. Right. I mean, more and more people live in the cities. We live in the cities. We can't even see the stars. We have to get out in the country to, mm -hmm. to look at the, uh, the heavens, if you will. And um, uh, so I think when you're a navigator and you're, you're in the middle of the ocean and you're not competing with glare for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles, right. it connects you in a way that uh, you can't be connected uh, otherwise. So uh, I think it's that connection with nature that might be an answer maybe not the answer but mm -hmm. it's the best i can think of right now <laughs> oh i think that's fantastic that's a beautiful thing to you know see and realize your place you know on this yeah. on this rock yes <laughs> basically yeah. cool well um i'm here with uh greg neidhart he's associate professor in the music department here at uh, winona state university and he's also the director of arts administration program and uh he's a former navy officer and uh, thank you for for your service and um it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. We're talking. We were talking about uh, early navigation in the U.S. Navy, and um, the Minnesota Marine Art Museum also has an exhibit right now uh, by the artist Martin Placha. It's called "The Early History of the U.S. Navy," and uh, kind of ties in with this talk. Now, uh, Greg, the, some of the instruments and stuff you talked about are they on display down at the museum right now? They are not on display. Uh, we okay. do have a collection, though. We have, okay. uh, in fact, uh, the Marine Art Museum um, uh, instruments and objects going back to the 1600s i think the oldest and i may be wrong about this i think it's a it's a a, 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 a dutch signal gun from the 1600s oh wow but then we have instruments uh as early as the 20th century we have a long glass which is a telescope we have sextants we have an octant uh, octants um we have uh, chronometers uh, just it's an it's a small collection but it's a really nice collection uh, it's not on. Um, it's not being exhibited right now, but it is part of okay. the collection. Uh, it was part of a, a, an exhibition about ten years ago, uh, but uh, 
I don't know if it will be exhibited anytime soon, but okay. it, it is in the collection of the Minnesota Marine Art Museum. Cool. Well, I'm glad they have it at least, you know. Yes. The Minnesota Marine Art Museum is a beautiful thing that we have here in town. I love that we have it, you know. It, it, it's amazing that we have this uh, incredible, you know, this gem yeah. located right here in in uh, Winona. Yes. Yeah, it is. So I encourage everyone to get down there and uh, see the Martin Placha uh, exhibit that's on display through uh, August 18th here in 2019. And uh, like I said, earlier i'm talking to greg neidhart and uh we're talking about early navigation with the u.s navy and uh thanks so much for being on the show today greg it's my pleasure thanks again to greg neidhart for joining us today on culture click for information on the exhibit the early history of the u.s navy being shown at minnesota marine art museum go to mmam.org to keep up on all things winona and the surrounding area Tune into Culture Click Thursdays at 12:30 right here on 89.5 KQAL. I'm Bill Stoneberg and we've been speaking with Professor Greg Neidhart on Culture Click. Creating cultural awareness and understanding. You've been listening to Culture Click. Support for Culture Click is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Culture Click is produced by KQAL FM on the campus of Winona State University. For more information, look us up on the web at kqal.org. And thanks for listening to Culture Click. Are you interested in all things Winona and the surrounding area? Find podcasts of Culture Click and all your favorite KQAL shows by going to kqal.org and looking for program archives under the Media tab. Culture Click is made possible by a grant from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.